Welcome to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep will talk with some of the smartest thinkers in business to help make you more successful in your professional and personal life. This is Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken. Hello, everybody. Shep Hyken here with another episode of Amazing Business Radio, and we're going to have another amazing interview. But first, we're going to answer your questions. That's right. If you want your question answered, just go to Twitter. Use my handle, at Hyken, H-Y-K-E-N. Use the hashtag, AskShep, and I will answer your question. And I actually have two questions that are very, very similar uh, this week. What is the difference between repeat business and loyalty? And the other question is very similar, or at least it has a similar answer. What makes a customer truly loyal? Because there is a difference between repeat business and customer loyalty. So I've often believed that customer attention is about repeat business. That's transactional. Just getting somebody to come back and buy again. And people confuse somebody coming back, you know, repeat business with customer loyalty. They're not the same. Loyalty may include repeat business, but more than a transaction, it includes some type of an emotional connection. And I'll give you an example. Um, And and I'm going to kind of go down a little bit of a, a different line here to answer this. As I think about loyalty in the restaurant business, say, loyalty might be we have a customer that comes in on a regular basis we enjoy seeing that customer he or she enjoys seeing us we have a great relationship the servers know them the staff knows them we know what uh, if i'm as a manager of the restaurant i greet the customer every time they come in Um, we know what this customer is going to order we take care of them i would consider that not just a regular customer but a loyal customer However, a lot of people think of loyalty as like getting 100% of the business. Um, A stockbroker, for example, might call it wallet share. What percentage of the customer's investable assets, their wallet per se, uh, are they investing with the broker? And they're going for 100%. As a restaurant, how do you say every time you're hungry, you'll come and see me? No, you've got a grocery store and they go out and buy other things. And maybe they don't want Italian food today. Maybe they want Greek food. Or maybe they just want a sandwich and not a fancy steak, depending on the type of restaurant you have. But I know that uh, the restaurants that I go to on a regular basis would call me a loyal customer, even though I don't give them 100% of my business. Now, let's talk about a repeat customer. Maybe the customer goes and visits a place that they do business with simply because it's convenient. It's right down the street. And if I'm going to go grab a quick bite to eat, that's a great spot. And what would happen if a competitor opened up across the street? Would I be uncomfortable about going there? No, I'll go there too. And maybe now I'm splitting my time between the two restaurants. And I'll argue that while I am a repeat business or while my business, I come back again and again, and I am a repeat customer, excuse me, I'm a repeat customer, I'm definitely not a loyal customer. I'm not loyal to the brand. It's just that it's convenient. I'm not loyal to the food. It's good. It's not great. It's not getting me to come back every time I need something. So I know I'm I'm talking a lot about this, but I just want to emphasize just because the customer buys from you again and even again and maybe again doesn't mean the customer is loyal. If you want loyalty, this is what I want you to think about. I do want you to think about them buying again. I do want you to think about the next time. But what I want you to think about is the next time every time. So ask yourself the loyalty question. Is what I'm doing right now 
going to get that customer to come back the next time they need whatever it is that I sell. All right. That's the question. That's the answer. I hope you enjoyed it. We're going to jump into the interview in just a moment. We're going to be right back, so don't go away. If you like what you're hearing on Amazing Business Radio, and I know you do, then you can get much more of this information. All you have to do is go to my website, hyken.com. That's www.hyken.com. Fill out the subscribe to the shepherd letter form. And each week, you will get an article that contains a business tip, stories, much more, all about customer service and experience delivered straight to your inbox. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to always be amazing. You're listening to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. We're back on Amazing Business Radio, and I promised you another amazing interview, and that's what we're going to have today with Karen Jaw Madsen, who's an organizational expert, and she's enjoyed success as a corporate executive before jumping into doing some of her own thing, which included researching and writing, consulting, teaching, speaking, and many other creative pursuits. Now, she is currently a principal of co-design, um, which is, I'm going to make sure I get this right, co-design of work experience. And we're going to learn what that exactly means. She is a designer of work experience. She's also the author of a great book that you're going to want to read. And just because of the title, you're going to get it. Culture, your culture. Innovating experiences at work culture culture i love that and that's available at amazon just came out last year and of course uh her publisher emerald group also has a bookstore you can go to the emeraldbookstore.com and find that but right now we have in the house karen jaw madsen welcome to amazing business radio hi shep it's great to be here thanks for having me hey, i'm glad you're here so first of all a little background on yourself i gave people the hint that hey you had a corporate world life and then you moved into doing your own thing then you're now you're writing the book and you own the company so let's talk about it sure well i'm originally from new jersey i lived in a number of different places and traveled extensively but we're now based in silicon valley california where the weather is much nicer and there's no winter, really. <laughs> but that, see, that's the thing. You're at a place that has no weather. Well, actually, Silicon Valley does. Down in San Diego, no weather. They say, is that it's good or bad? It's microclimate. I like, I like I love the seasons. <laughs> I like having different seasons. You know, I'm from St. Louis. You were from New Jersey. We have the snow. We have the rain. We have the sleet. We have the humidity in the summer. It's hotter than Hades, it seems, sometimes. But, hey, mm-hmm. now you're in a beautiful place, and it sounds like you're happy. Yeah. Yeah. And we had five years in the Midwest. So I think we had our fill of winter in those five years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, But yeah, I I had a uh, long corporate career before I ended up leaving to manage what I call this portfolio career, which you um, shared earlier. And with all my background in organization and leadership, I decided to uh, focus mainly on people strategies, company culture, and organizational change. And of course, this book needed to be written. And so there's a lot that I've been able to do since leaving in 2013 and going out on my own. Uh, and this book is really intended to be that much needed step-by-step how-to for intentionally designing, implementing, and sustaining culture using design of work experience. All right. So design of work experience. What does that mean and how does it work? Sure. Uh, The only way to really appreciate 
um, design of work experience, and I'll, I'll shorten it to DEWEY. That's the acronym. DEWEY. Um, the, the only, yeah. D-O-W-E. DEWEY. Correct. Correct. <laughs> design of work experience. Yes, I went to school. Figure that. <laughs> I figured that out. Well, now it's memorable. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, as I was saying, uh, the 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 only way to fully appreciate it is to experience it. But in a few words, it is a co-design concept framework and process all rolled into one, and it builds the capability to create culture through strategies and experiences that are custom created for their intended context. All right, so I'm um, going to jump in and just say yeah. that what you just described is planning on purpose rather than planning by accident. Because, uh, you, you know, smaller businesses start out and in the owner's mind or the, the group of people that start the company in their mind, they have this vision. But it's never really uh, as much purposeful as it is, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it could be altruistic, but it's in their mind and it's what they try to do. You're talking about putting, you know, meat to it, you know, and, and actually a create a true system behind it. Yes, absolutely. And in addition to that, making it custom created for the company. So it's not about copying what other people have done or just incorporating best practices without any customization. The important part is that it's intentional and that it's that it's relevant to its intended context. Mm-hmm. Great. So where do we start? What kind of company benefits from Dewey? <laughs> I love that. Dewey. I wrote that down, which is how I'm able to remember this. Dewey, uh, design of work experience. Dewey. Yes. Uh, well, I'm I'm so glad we're talking so much about it because I really do want to share this with the world. Um, all organizations really could benefit from using Dewey, but not everyone is willing to care enough to invest in their culture. So it's the ones that know that doing so will increase the value of their company, their, their brand, and inspire engaged and productive employees. So you really have to fully leverage this concept, but a company has to be prepared to do three things when you do that. One is practice what I call organizational mindfulness, which is honestly paying attention to what's in front of them at all points of the process, whether it's good, bad, or in between. Two, have a willingness to follow through on their promises. And three, actually change. So those are the kinds of companies that would benefit from using Dewey. Wow. So, um, and, and I'm, I'm writing these down as fast as, as you, because I want to make sure I come back to them. The, uh, sure. uh, uh, the, I guess, you know, culture is great. And I believe what's happening on the inside of an organization is being felt on the outside. So a lot of times I'm talking to companies about part of their culture, not all of their culture. Um, companies could have core values, they could have mission statements and vision statements, but what I look for is to incorporate a customer service vision into their strategy and into their culture, because I don't believe customer service is a department, it's a philosophy to be brought in through. Yes. So, so um, can, can, we, can we swing it a little bit that direction? How would a company incorporate a customer service vision into this type of strategy? Well, if you're talking about the kind of um, company cultures that make good customer service, is that what you're trying yeah. to get at? Um, yeah. Who are your yeah. favorite companies to, to do business with? Oh, gosh. Um, the ones that are, honestly, it doesn't have to be a great culture to begin with. It's just that they want that. To me, the hunger for it and the commitment to it 
makes it a really my favorite companies to work with. And, and it's not anyone. That I mean, are there any retailers you like to buy clothes from that we would all recognize, or an online company <laughs> that you love? I mean, I mean, you know, they're probably you know, know you're all everybody says the same ones, which is fine. People, oh, I love doing business yeah. with Amazon. They're so easy, you know. Um, yeah. I'll tell you, I haven't worked with them, but I do uh, admire uh, the Kind Company. I really love them. They're one of those that, is that I came the candy, across. Or I, I call it the candy bar, the the nutritional bars, the nuts. Is that what you're referring yes, The Kind yeah. Company, yeah, yes. Kind Bar. Those are delicious. I'm going to call them yeah, and tell and them they, they owe us money now for the plug. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, you asked for it, so I thought I'd share those that I, that I really admire. Kind is one of those that I came across in my research that uh, are in business quote, not only for profit, right? So they've got a higher purpose for what they do and customer certainly is part of that, but they also have a social impact agenda. Uh, Patagonia is another company that I really admire. Mm -hmm. I think they take corporate citizenship um, really seriously and they follow through with their actions. So um, those those are two companies that I think um, really get it when it comes to their customers because they have such a loyal following, but they understand what it's, what the responsibilities come with in terms of being in business in the first place and right. making a, a positive difference. So, and, and a kind company, while I don't know much about them other than I do like their their uh, bars that they sell, Patagonia, Delicious. right, corporate citizen. And you know what? The employees of Patagonia love working at Patagonia. And I think REI is kind of the same way. Um you yeah. know, uh, and and then there's companies, uh, and I can go on and on with like uh, you know makeup retailers uh, that like Lush, who claim no animal testing whatsoever. That's a big deal to mm-hmm. people, and so people will go and do business with them. But even more importantly, they will attract a certain type of of uh, employee that wants to work at a company like this. Um, are, are, yeah. you, are you familiar with the Container sure. Store? Yes. Yeah. I'm very familiar with them. I have one down the street. And, and you know, I, I did a little research when I was writing a book, and I featured them in the book. Do you know, want to know what they, uh, who they, they attract and how they get their, their employees? They ask their current employees oh. who they know, yep. and mm-hmm. they like to hire neatniks, you know, people who are, like, very organized and want to be neat. <laughs> so yeah. I think part of the test so is that. They're hiring after- for type. What? Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> what? They're hiring for a type, aren't they? They are hiring for a type. As a matter of fact, you know, I would imagine that they might even walk out with the potential employee and and just look inside their car to see if it really is neat. In order, <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're you're speaking to a couple of things there. One is customers could be your employees, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, and so there's always that potential. And that's, so that's why branding and customer service is so important. Um, the other thing is all these companies that we've talked about. They don't get they don't get that good um, on a one time thing. It's an ongoing, intentional, purposeful set of actions that they have to sustain. So it's a it's, it's not a point in time thing. They have to keep doing it to stay where they are. Even right, it doesn't happen by accident. That's right. That that's what we were talking about before. So we've got these three, um, I guess, think beliefs you have to have and, and implement. Um, what what do you need to do to start this? Where, where does it begin? What kind of, you know, what mindset, what skills, what, what do you need to make Dewey happen? Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've written in the past that 
consu- as consumers of the employee experience, everyone within a company is pre-qualified to contribute. So it's something that's very democratic in that respect. Um, but it does require, in order to practice this, it does require commitments to the process as well as certain mindsets and behaviors, such as learning, empathy, collaboration, uh, strengths-based mindsets, systems and design thinking, iteration, self-awareness, agility, all the things that make for not only creativity, but self-awareness and, and transformation. So if I'm going to design a product with the idea that a customer is going to use it, is that is, is doing so similar to the way I would design the culture of a company? Um, yes, actually. And, and I like how you frame it because what it does is it centers it on the people it's themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So especially when you talk about design thinking, it's about um, people-centered research and design and, and understanding people so well and so inherently even better than they know themselves. So understanding their lifestyles and being able to create for something that delights and engages them. I mean, those are the same uh, types of characteristics you're looking for when it comes to employee experience. And they're the same that you're looking for when it comes to customer experience as well. So when you're developing products, it's, first, it's intentional, right? It, you're developing something that people can't live without, right? It has to be that good in order to get that adoption and the, and the kind of enthusiasm around it. And, and the only way you get that is from knowing people and understanding their context. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you can hire for the type of people that you want. As we were just talking about container stores definitely hiring a certain type of people. No doubt about it. Hey, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about more uh, on culture. But I'd like to get specific to, you know, the employee experience and how it ties into the customer experience and, and that type of thing. So we're going to do that. The book, again, it's called Culture, Your Culture, Innovating Experiences at Work. It's available on Amazon. If you want to learn more about Karen and her company, just go to www.designofworkexperience.com. We're going to take a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Good customer service is now an expectation. Don't provide it and you'll be disrupted by a competitor who does. So what can you do to stand out? Well, that's the focus of my latest book, The Convenience Revolution, how to create a customer service experience that disrupts the competition and creates fierce loyalty. The goal is to reduce friction and be convenient for your customers. So if you're ready to take your customer service to the next level and disrupt your competitors, well, this is the book for you. To order the book, go to www.beconvenient.com. That's beconvenient.com. It's time for you to join the revolution, the convenience revolution. This is Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken. We're back on Amazing Business Radio talking with Karen Jaw Madsen about Dewey Design of Work Experience. So, Karen, uh, what kind, and we're, we're talking about culture, so what kind of culture, if they decide we need to start delivering a better customer experience, is there, I mean, there's lots of cultures that are out there. Some are fun to work with, some are really serious. And by the way, all of them can deliver an amazing experience, an amazing service, but is there a particular DNA of a culture that is better suited for this? Yeah, I think it's great that you talk about the variety or different flavors of it. They may have um, similar characteristics, but still plays out differently because they have different cultures. 
the cultures that I think make for good customer service are ones that value all the parties involved in customer service, whether it's the employees, their management, their customers, of course, sales, supply chain operations. They look at the whole ecosystem behind it. Because when I came through with what, with all my research, it's all those that are inclusive of the entire system that are more successful at connecting the dots and making it a seamless experience. So um, those that treat their company, there are some companies that actually treat their customers as internal to their company ecosystem. So just framing it that way uh, sets expectations around both the culture and the customer service that they give. All right, explain um, that, how they, how it's, you know, they tie it into the ecosystem. I mean, that was a, an interesting comment, but I'm not sure exactly what you meant. I'm intrigued. Sure. Yep. <laughs> Um, I'll name the company, um, this going back a few years, West Elm, uh, which is a home design company that is part of the Pottery Barn brand. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, they, they see customers as part of their own community. So when you, when you look at customers, not as this us versus them thing or at external to the company only, then um, you, you see them a little bit differently, right? You might, you might treat them the same way you would treat other employees or your coworkers, you know, people that are part of the same community of collaboration that you, or the same projects. And if you're, if you're talking with customers as if they were in with you, um, I think that creates a whole different dynamic. You know, there's, um, I don't know if it's true or not, but they say that when Jeff Bezos has a meeting in his boardroom, there's a seat but nobody sits in it because that's the seat of the customer. If the customer were there and, and it is symbolism. And I think that's what you're talking about, but here's the thing. It's easy. No, They actually bring They bring customers in and talk to them that way too. Okay. Amazon or West Elm does. West Elm. Okay, great. So, so that's my question. It's easy to say, we're going to make the customer part of us and make them, you know, as we talk about them. But how does that really play out in real life? So they bring customers in. Is this more than a focus group? Is this more than just saying, hey, we want your opinion and let's bring a half a dozen customers in twice a year? What what does this company do to really make that happen? You know, I think it's about seeing them as co-designers of, of this mission that they're trying to achieve as a company. I think when you when you regard people as equal peers, um, or if you look at them as even more important, and you're you're designing your services and your products in a people-centered way, then you're able to get to know them in, in ways where you can anticipate their needs before they even ask for it. So a lot of it has to do the, with the familiarity with um, the customers that you're trying to reach and to keep, um, and that requires a company to be. Uh, flexible, people-centered, as well as consistent, because you can't plan for every scenario. But if they have those values and principles and the culture behind everything they do, they're able to create these exemplary experiences that keep people, um, you know, engaged. Right. So I'm going to give you two examples of what I think you're talking about. And you can say yes and yes, or no and yes, or no and no, <laughs> or yes and no. So here's my first example. I wrote about a company years ago that had a board of directors and a board of customers. And they, they of course, you need the board of directors to run your company and choose leadership and, and, and you know, plot a course, so to, to speak, on strategy. But you need your customers to tell you what strategy to take based on their mm-hmm. input and the products. 
So that may be a good example. And then another one that's even more common, and I, and I speak at a lot of these events, they're users groups, they're user conferences. And these are software companies or some type of a product where they have a convention, not with their own salespeople, a conference for their own people to go and learn you know, internally, but no, they have these conferences and they play to the users of their products and services. And, and really, they have a board of directors, and it sounds to me, as I look at some of these, that the user board of directors is more powerful than the company's own board of directors because they can actually make policy and, and make things happen that will force the company to change. It's pretty powerful. Yes. Um, so to answer your question, yes and yes, because you're giving them a seat at the table, um, and, and you're treating them... Um, as important components of the process. And in the work that I do, it's also about going to where they are. So not even just inviting them to come to you, but being able to embed yourself in their daily lives. Got it. So very good. And I think this is a real important concept to really make your customers part of your company culture, not treat them as, oh yeah, they're outside. So we have internal customers and outside customers we're going to use the same word to describe everybody. We're all customers, different types of customers. And we all get trained differently internally. If somebody's front-facing to an actual uh, outside customer, they're going to be trained differently than somebody who might be in the back room or in a warehouse and doesn't really interact, but obviously has some impact on the experience. So as we start to wind up here, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the the difference between uh, you know a design of work experience um as, as it goes to an employee experience and a customer experience. So are they really that different? Uh, I think today, and, and I'll riff on this for just a second and let you comment, I think today we have very low unemployment. And therefore, it's if you've got good people, you need to keep good people because if they leave and go somewhere else, maybe a competitor comes in and, and takes them away or maybe they just are in, disenchanted with you and you've got somebody good walking. It's hard to replace them with really good people because – all the good people are, are working. Not that there aren't good people out there, that there, there, there are good people out there that may be looking for jobs, and maybe there's some people out there. I mean, it's just unemployment's low, hard to get a job, right? Yeah. Well, and the resources it takes to replace somebody, yeah, not expensive. only to find them, but yeah, to ramp them up, it's very expensive. And so um, although we have to be realistic and understand that, uh, you know, employability is not, you know, one person at the same company anymore for the entirety of their careers. I think there needs to be an understanding as well that, you know, while you are here, it's going to be amazing. Right. And because when it has, when it has that, I found people that have found those magic moments in their career and they spent the rest of their careers chasing it, honestly. Um, so we have to look at it in both short, mid and long-term perspectives when it comes to things like that. But in the sense that how employee experience is different than customer service has to do, might vary having to do with the frequency, depth, and the longevity of the interaction or the relationship between them and the company. So that's what I'm, I'm speaking to. And to echo some other thought leaders like yourself out there, the employee experience comes before the customer's experience, right? Right. Uh, employees are your internal customers, as I've heard you say. Yeah, and what happens inside is felt on the outside. So if you focus on, and I, I have this employee golden rule, do unto the employees the way you want done unto the customer. And if you even treat them better than that, then they really get the idea. And leadership 
has to be the role model to set that in motion. Because you can't say, do as I say, not as I do. It's incongruent. It's contradictory. Absolutely. That's the quickest way to erode trust, right? When you when you don't follow through with what you say. Yeah, or they see a leader acting differently. You know, there was a client, um, they had three owners, and we went in to do a pretty big proposal on some customer service training. And I actually sent one of my trainers in to deliver the proposal and actually give a, a sample of what the training would be. And one of the people, one of the owners weren't there. So in the debrief, I asked about that. And they said, well, we've got somebody that's not quite on board. And uh, mm. they don't, you know, so we've outruled them two to three. Okay, so I think, you know, we're probably going to go forward, but we've got to figure out a way to get his buy-in. And we basically said, if he doesn't buy in, we're not going to do the training because, number one, we guarantee what we do. And we know we can't be successful because we don't have the entire group of leaders on board with us, the owners on board with us uh, making this happen. All it takes is one to be upset and it'll sour the whole the whole effort that we do, which just. Yeah. Yeah. And on the flip side. I've had side, the same thing happen. Yeah. Did you have <laughs> the same thing? Yeah. I ha- have. And, and I had to walk away from you know, pretty lucrative engagement because, you know, it's also, you want to be able, people like us want to be able to help companies be successful. And when you can see it up front that the success factors aren't there, um, you don't want to waste anybody's time or their money, honestly. Yeah, I know. And and you know what, it's, and I think by you doing that, you're doing yourself a favor, you're doing them a favor. You're also, I think, elevating your level of, uh, uh, what's uh, you know you're being authentic that's a word that you use when we were on the break and I appreciate that uh, but you're you're being true to yourself you know what your limits are on the flip side we had a client that hired us a president of a of a company that was regional so we're in nine different cities and we did nine different full day trainings for what I would call more administrative type staff uh, people that are support to their internal customers and um, you know, they may or may not ever talk to the customer. And this guy, mm. the president, showed up all day, nine days straight. And he didn't miss one. He introduced our trainer. He was there at lunch, and he was there at the end. He sat in the back. And I know he was multitasking because I was there one day and watched. But you know what? You saw this man in the room the entire time. And what message did that send? That was huge. Yeah. No, I think it goes both ways, as you say. And, you know, how to the leaders, how do you expect employees to get behind what you're trying to do if you're not modeling it yourself? Exactly. And that, that by the way, is a tweetable line right there. Perfect. Well, <laughs> we're, that's going to lead us into the final question, the one thing question. What one thing can you think of that you'd like to share with us? One extra nugget or do you want to emphasize something you've already talked about? Yeah, you know, I'm going to issue a call to action or challenge of sorts. I want people to think about their top priorities for culture uh, and what the consequences would be if nothing is done one year from now. Because my whole thing is do something. Because if you don't do something, you're allowing your culture to potentially be a liability as opposed to a differentiating asset. And it doesn't have to be a liability. And I know it can be a great asset. Yeah. Amen. All right. The book is called 
Culture Your Culture, Innovating Experience at Work, available through Amazon and through your website, uh, which is designofworkexperience.com. Karen, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. This is why we call it Amazing Business Radio. You were amazing today. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody, that's another episode, and we hope to see you, or at least you can hear us next week on another episode of Amazing Business Radio. This is Shep Hyken. Until we meet again, reminding you to always be amazing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.